Okay. Um, well, welcome to our inaugural speaker, uh, inaugural uh, session of the National Security Speaker Series. It's mistitled on here, but all right, big deal. Um, I'm really pleased to have Charlie Cupchin as our first speaker. Um, I've known him for at least 20 years when he was a professor at Princeton and I was a grad student at Columbia and he was visiting Columbia and he was writing this book actually, The Vulnerability of Empire. He has uh, nine books, which really surprised me by my count, nine books. Um, I just want to say this one is terrific, The Vulnerability of Empire. I haven't, you know, I've read the others, but I love this book and I think it's the most underrated book in the field really. Um, it's just a theoretical tour de force. It, ambitious empirically it's it's very rich as you can see gigantic um, so anyway if you haven't gotten vulnerability vampire definitely look it up it's a great book um, he uh, is the professor of international affairs in the school of foreign service and government at Georgetown he is also the Whitney H Shepherdson senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations he was director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the first Clinton administration, and he worked in the U.S. Department of State on the policy planning staff prior to that. He's been a professor at Princeton as well, as I mentioned. Um, today, he's going to be giving a talk on Enemies into Friends, How Peace Breaks Out, which is, I think, the title of his latest book. Yeah, How Enemies Become Friends on Princeton University Press 2010. I've read the foreign affairs piece. I haven't gotten to the book yet. Anyway, without any, well, John, I just want to say John Mearsham will be here next week, same time, same day, Wednesday, 3.30. Uh, so anyway, just to make that plug before I get up. Without any further ado, Charlie Kupchin. Thank you, uh, Randy, for the warm welcome, and thanks to, to Rick and the Mershon Center and anyone else, Courtney, who has uh, helped uh, plan the, the visit today. I'm delighted to be here. I think it's, uh, Randy and I were just discussing it may have been 17 years since my last visit to, uh, to Columbus, uh, so uh, it's, uh, a return visit has been long overdue. If you pick up today's paper. I actually don't know about your local paper, but one of the national newspapers, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Washington Post or the LA Times or Le Monde or Die Zeit or probably the People's Daily, there's a pretty safe bet that at least one of the stories on the front page will be about war. That's certainly true in the United States because we've just embarked on a third war. Two wasn't enough, so we added one more to the, to the, uh, to the list. But uh, you know, if you just think about the last, say, few years, you can bet that on the front pages of, any, uh, of one of these papers, you will see something about Iraq or Afghanistan, now Libya, perhaps Somalia, maybe Sudan. But rest assured, that most days of the week, most weeks of the year, there will be at least one, if not two, stories about war on the front page. I think it's safe to say that when we wake up tomorrow morning and we go to one of these newspapers, we will not see a headline that says, 
all quiet on the U.S.-Canadian border. And if you're in Germany, you will not wake up to a headlines in Die Zeit or FAZ that says all quiet on the Franco-German border. And that may sound like a stupid thing to say, and that's because it is a stupid thing to say, but it's also something that I think reminds us how much we take peace for granted and how much we ignore zones of peace, instances of peace, undefended borders, because we've come to take them for granted. Uh, if we get in a car now and we start heading north, I would guess that in about, what, 10 hours, 12 hours, we'd hit the, the Canadian border. How long? Six? We're that far north? Well, I guess it's snowing. but So in six hours, we would hit the Canadian border, and that's a long border. I'm assuming it's two to 3,000 miles long. And somewhat miraculously, you will not find any major American troops on that border. You will find probably some anti-terrorist squads and some customs officials. And it's not that surprising because Canada is not likely to attack us. They don't have the wherewithal to attack us. So it's not surprising that you don't have one or two armored divisions on the U.S.-Canadian border. What is surprising, however, is that Canada doesn't have any forces on its side of the border. And that's because we know that the United States tends to invade other countries fairly regularly, that the United States has a military that's second to none. But the Canadians do not go to bed at night worrying that we're about to come crashing over the border. And that's why that border is undefended. And that's why that border has been undefended since the last contingent of British regulars withdrew in 1906. That's amazing. Most borders in the world are not undefended. Most borders in the world are sites of geopolitical rivalry. And we know a lot about those borders and the rivalries that ensue, but we know very little bit about these magical moments in history in which peace breaks out, in which two countries that live side by side or perhaps even far from each other become so comfortable with one another that they stop worrying about geopolitical rivalry that they tear up the war plans that they hold of, to, to fight each other, and that they actually take their troops and move them away from the border because their confidence in peace is so high that they are comfortable making themselves vulnerable to attack. Well, it's that phenomenon, those magical moments when peace breaks out, when war is delegitimated as a tool of statecraft that I want to discuss uh, with you this afternoon, and that is the subject of the book that I published uh, uh, last year called How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace. So let me quickly outline what I want to do in the next 30 minutes or so, uh, then do it, and, and then we'll uh, open it up for, for conversation. First, I want to tell you a little bit about the intellectual genesis of the book, how I locate it in the field of IR, how I went about setting it up. Then I want to quickly give you the quick and dirty version of the argument. What did I find when I started looking at these cases in which long-standing rivals find their way to peace? And then I want to end by laying out five or six 
kernels, things that I, I think are some of the most interesting insights from this study that I hope you will take away with you when you leave the room around, around 5 o'clock. So let me start with trying to locate the book in, in IR. And, and, and what gaps do I hope the, the book fills uh, in an intellectual sense? Uh, for, for starters, let me say that I am not uh, uh, an, an ism kind of guy. Uh, I'm not someone who is in this business to advance realism or constructivism or any other ism for that matter. Uh, I'm, I generally am a problem-driven scholar. Uh, and I'm very comfortable drawing on whatever intellectual tradition or theoretical paradigm helps me explain the problem that I'm seeking to understand. And as a consequence of that, uh, uh, I think my work tends to be kind of a theoretical jumble, a kitchen sink approach, uh, but uh, I'm very comfortable with that approach, again, because I think that my task, at least in this book and most of the other things I write, is to do the best job I can answering the empirical puzzle that I've set up. And if I end up uh, drawing liberally from different intellectual traditions and answering that puzzle, that's fine with me as long as I do the best job that I can of actually explaining in an empirically reliable way the outcome that I'm attempting to uh, explain. That having been said, you know, to the degree that I uh, am, am attempting to speak to what I see as gaps in the, the field in a theoretical sense, uh, I, I, uh, I am working in, in this tradition here. This is on one of the handouts that you have. Uh, figure 2-1, the logics of international politics, inter international society, and national politics. And this book is about international society, which you will see in the middle there. I affiliate that work with Karl Deutsch more than others, but for those of you who are kind of into IR, the IR literature, I would say it's, it's, it's sort of part and parcel of what has come to be called the English school. And in focusing on this realm of international politics called international society, I'm hoping to help fill out and map out and articulate that realm of international politics that sits astride the traditional realm of international politics, interstate relations among sovereign states, and the realm that we generally call comparative politics, which is the study of unitary states, or states that are quasi-unitary. In other words, I'm looking at relationships between states that are still international in the sense that they deal with states, uh, 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 deal with relations across state boundaries, but that those relations have a sufficiently sociological character that they start looking a lot like domestic politics, that they start looking a lot like relations that occur not between independent autonomous sovereign states, but units that begin to have characteristics of uh, states in terms of their relations, in terms of their identities, in terms of their transactions. And I identify kind of three different kinds of animals in this family of international society. One, rapprochement, which is when two states become comfortable enough with each other that they drop down their guard, that they 
their relationship is demilitarized, but it stops there. Uh, and the U.S.-U.K. relationship by the early uh, 20th century would be an example of that. The next part, the next sort of evolution on the food chain would be a security community in which the states in question, like the European Union today, like ASEAN today, don't just let down their guard, but they fashion a nascent order based upon certain principles of governance uh, that, ma that manage their relationships internally, even though they tend to have uh, their own relationships with third parties. And then the most advanced form of stable peace, the most advanced form of, of international society, would be a federal union. S previously sovereign entities that come together and are so comfortable with each other that their borders become geopolitically inconsequential. We now live in a federal union. The borders between our states are geopolitically consequential, inconsequential. That was not always the case. But when I leave campus at Georgetown and get on the guts bus to go across the river to get on the metro at Roslyn, which is in Virginia, I don't self-consciously say to myself that I'm passing through a border of geopolitical consequence. And that's, that's actually relatively new in the United States. That's a 20th century phenomenon. We began using a singular verb after the United States only after the Civil War. Americans are Americans first and Virginians second only as a relatively recent phenomenon. In fact, Texans still haven't made that transition. <laughs> but this is all to say that we take for granted that we, we live in uh, a, a federal entity in which the internal boundaries no longer matter, but we shouldn't take that for granted. We know that our internal boundaries mattered a hell of a lot in the 1860s when a half a million Americans died to prevent our internal borders from again becoming geopolitical fault lines. And so by looking at the United States, by looking at Germany, by looking at today the United Arab Emirates, a federal entity consisting of seven tribes that when they started the process didn't even have territory because they were Bedouin roving tribes, now a territorially defined unitary state. By studying how that happened, uh, again, I'm attempting to map out that zone, that, that intellectual landscape between international politics and domestic politics. So I went about this, this study uh, by gathering together as many case studies as I could find, both successful instances of stable peace and instances in which countries embarked down the path to peace but didn't get there. They crashed and burned along the way. And after collecting that universe of cases, I ended up selecting 10 successes and 10 failures, 20 cases in all, to serve as the core empirical material for the book. Those case studies are in the packet that you have, table 1-1. I am going to focus on one particular case study in just a second, and that is the Anglo-American case, partly because it represents the biggest chapter in the book, partly because I think some of you may be more familiar with it than the Iroquois Confederacy or the Senegambian Confederation 
or the United Arab Republic or other instances of stable peace that I had never even heard of before I started writing this book. But I'm happy to discuss with you this wider universe of cases during uh, the, the Q&A. Let me say that my rule of thumb in selecting the cases was diversity. Get as much variation across time, space, and culture as possible. And that's why I have some cases from the 13th century, some from the 15th century, and some from the 20th century. That's why I've got cases in Europe, in Latin America, in South Asia, in North Asia, and in Africa. In other words, just cast the net as broadly as possible and see what comes out. So what did I find? And as I said, I'm going to tell the story through the lens of the, of the Anglo-American case. The United States and, and Great Britain, countries that we now take to be perhaps the, I don't know if the closest allies in the world, but close to the closest allies in the world, the so-called special relationship, were not in a very special relationship for quite a long time. We fought a war with Britain starting in 1775 to get rid of them. They came back in 1812, burned down the White House. And for the balance of the 19th century, the United States and Great Britain were each other's main enemies. War plans at the ready, at times forces being mobilized over one dispute or another. The tables begin to turn in 1895, and the source of the movement in the relationship is a dispute that breaks out between Venezuela and British Guiana over their border. The Brits receive a message from Washington, from the president, which says this dispute that is taking place between your colony and Venezuela is taking place in the Western Hemisphere. Consistent with the logic of the Monroe Doctrine, it is therefore taking place in our backyard, and we therefore believe that we should have a say in how this dispute is resolved. And we urge you and give you wise counsel to take this to a court of neutral arbitration. And the British cabinet meets, they read this message from Washington, and they send back a note that says, get lost. When that happens, there's a buzz in Washington. Congress meets, and they start discussing this affront to American hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. And suddenly, Washington is talking about war with Great Britain. The British diplomats in Washington immediately send back dispatches to Lord Salisbury and the cabinet saying, the United States is thinking about going to war with us over this dispute between British Guiana and Venezuela. The cabinet reconvenes. At this time, they bring in their military specialists, in particular the Admiralty, and they say to the Admiralty, the prospect of war with the United States looms on the horizon. What is your advice? How will we fare? What do you recommend? 
and the Admiralty says to Lord Salisbury and his colleagues, we can't do this. We have Germany getting uppity. Japan is building a high seas fleet. The United States is building a world-class battle fleet. And the Boers are getting restless in South Africa. We simply don't have the capital ships to go to war against the United States. We need to get out of this pickle. And we need diplomacy to do it. And Lord Salisbury listens to this, discusses this with his mates, and he dispatches a new message back to Washington, which says, we have reconsidered your suggestion that this dispute be taken to a neutral panel of arbitration, and we accede to your wish. And Arthur Balfour, the leader, the speaker in the House of Commons, gives a speech soon thereafter in which he says, the United Kingdom hereby recognizes the legitimacy of the Monroe Doctrine. And people in Washington are completely befuddled. They don't know what's going on, but it wakes them up. Because it has, it's been a long time in coming since a British cabinet sent back a message that basically said, yes, sir, how high should we jump? But what that message did was essentially say to the United States, we Brits are sending you a peace offering. That was the opening gambit in attempting to move the United States from the enemy column in the friend, into the friend column. Not because the Brits were altruistic, not because they had suddenly lost their animosity toward the United States, but because they had to because they couldn't take their capital ships and send them out of the Atlantic and the Mediterranean at a time when the Germans were heading in the direction of building a high seas fleet. Hadn't yet done so, but German nationalism was clearly on the rise. And so when push came to shove, when the Brits faced a strategic deficiency and couldn't defend all quarters of the empire, they turned to accommodation of the United States as a way to resolve their strategic predicament. And that's really the story that I found replicated across all of the cases that I looked at. The initial move from, from, enemy, from enemy status to friendship, from enmity to amity, occurs not as an act of altruism, but when one country has its back up against the wall, and sends a signal of benign intent to its enemy in an effort to open the door to rapprochement. In the book, I use an example from a movie to try to capture the core logic of this opening move. And the, lo the, the, the movie that I draw on is the, the Hunt for Red October. How many of you are familiar with that movie? Some of you. I'll give you a, a quick summary of, the, of that movie. That movie is about a new Soviet submarine with a silent propulsion system commanded by Captain Ramius, who just happens to be also known as Sean Connery. And Sean Connery has become rather disaffected with the Soviet leadership. I think that they, they killed his wife or something. There's some, there's some, he has some grudge to bear. And so he heads out to sea with this new ship, and he defects from the Soviet Union and is headed to the United States to turn over his boat to the CIA. And the Russians know what he's doing. 
and they send a cable to Washington. Actually, they send their ambassador in to see the national security advisor, and the Russian ambassador says, we have a renegade sub with a silent propulsion system. He's heading to the coast of the United States. He's going to sneak up on you, and he's going to launch his ballistic missiles and destroy you. Help us find him. Blow him up before he blows you up. And then the Americans send out their attack subs into the Atlantic, and they're looking for Sean Connery and his new boat, except there's a CIA agent on the American boat who knows that Sean Connery is not a renegade commander, but he is actually attempting to defect. And he convinces the American commander to give the Soviets a chance. Let them prove that they want to defect and they don't want to destroy you. What does he do? Anyone remember? He reverses his propeller. He is silently following the Soviet sub and he reverses his propeller which causes what's called cavitation bubbles because of the change in pressure which makes noise. He was basically wrapping his knuckles on the wall of his submarine to say to Sean Connery, you who, here I am, I'm right behind you, and I want you to know that, which is the cardinal sin of submarine warfare. And Sean Connery says, either this guy is an idiot, or he's deliberately telling me where he is because he wants me to know that he'd like to do business with me. And Sean Connery reciprocates by exchange pings. They rise to the surface, Morse code, looking through the periscopes. And 60 minutes later in the movie, Sean Connery is fishing off the coast of Maine, having given over his boat to the CIA. But it's that reversal of the propeller, that bold move to make oneself vulnerable, that's the, at the core of the logic of that opening move. For the Brits and the Americans, it was Salisbury's backing down on British Guiana and Venezuela and accepting the legitimacy of the Monroe Doctrine. It was sufficiently bold, sufficiently unusual that it made the Americans sit up and say something strange is going on here. So that's phase one. Phase two, which usually runs about three to five years, involves mutual testing each side sending signals to the other, attempting to build confidence and back away from mutual rivalry. So in the case of the United States and Britain, Washington reciprocated the goodwill from London. London asked that only a certain part of the border be arbitrated, and the United States says, fine, that's a good idea. The arbitration panel then found in favor of the British assessment, not the Venezuelan assessment. And the United States says, fine, we can live with that. And then in the next few years, the United States and Great Britain resolved the dispute over sealing rights in the Bering Sea, resolved the dispute over the American desire to build and fortify the Panama Canal, resolved the dispute over the border between Canada and Alaska. And then when in 1898 the United States picked a fight with Spain, booted them out of Cuba, 
and proceeded to colonize the Philippines, Guam, and Hawaii, there was one major power in the world that said, hooray, we support you and stand with you. And that was Great Britain. So that's really the, the, the kind of core logic of that second phase, the two sides exchanging conception, ex exchanging concessions, practicing what I call reciprocal restraint, withholding power, testing, trading, going back and forth in trying to build the beginnings of confidence in a relationship that is no longer defined by rivalry. The third and fourth stages of the process, the final stages, are much less rationalist and much more sociological. Stages one and two that I've just described were very much in the realm of high politics. They were dispatches from a prime minister to a president, communications between admiralty and naval officer, diplomats meeting in closed rooms. And that is done in part because some of the maneuvers, some of the concessions that were made during those critical years would not have been politically acceptable. In fact, the British cabinet hid from the British parliament and from the British public much of what it was doing at the time because it was afraid that if it said to the parliament or to the public, by the way, we are giving in, we are basically lying down and, and, and backing down with the United States, that there would be a nationalist backlash. And so deliberately the cabinet didn't tell the British people that the United States was being removed from the two-power standard, the standard used to size the Royal Navy. But in this third and fourth stage, that changes. And elites begin, now that they have a certain momentum behind them, to engage publics, to get private sectors to get behind rapprochement, to get public action groups, is that what, that's what we would call them today, lobby groups to be involved. In the case of the Anglo-American relationship, the Anglo-American Chamber of Commerce was born. It met regularly in London and in New York. And when they had dinner on either side of the Atlantic, they would start the dinner by singing the Star Spangled Banner and God Save the Queen. And they would fly the American flag and the British flag side by side. Traders, investors, tourists start getting involved. There is an outpouring of literature in the Atlantic Monthly, in Scribner's and in other publications about rapprochement between the two countries theater, novels, much greater engagement at that level of society in the closing relationship between the two sides. And then the final stage, which is in some ways the culmination, the capstone to the process, is a change in the narrative, a change in the discourse that the two sides use to describe one another. In the case of the United States and Britain, it had strongly racial overtones about Anglo-Saxon family, community, kinship, about Anglo-Saxon racial superiority. Roosevelt, by 1902-1903, began to talk about war between the United States and Great Britain as a civil war, as fratricide. 
British elites began using the same language on their side of the Atlantic. In other words, a self-other distinction, identities of opposition, became replaced by identities of weeness. And that shift in discourse more or less corresponds with the end of war planning, particularly in Britain, a little bit later in the United States, for war between the two countries. The US was taken off the two-power standard in 1902. As I mentioned, the last contingent of British regulars left Canada in 1906. That was the last time that Americans and Brits seriously entertained the prospect of going to war with each other. That story from the opening gambit, reciprocal restraint, societal integration, the generation of these new narratives is what I found across the 20 cases that I looked at. Obviously, it changes in form, in substance, in timing, in flavor, in taste, but that is a kind of distillation uh, of the core sequence of events that I found that, uh, it was, was essential to the breaking out of peace. That core logic is spelled out in figure 2-4, the sequential pathway to stable peace. Uh, and I would just make a few comments about this before moving to the final section of my remarks. First, as you can tell, and as I said before, the story changes over time from the rationalist to the sociological. That is, in the, in the beginning, it's very much about strategic assessments, threats, geopolitical necessity. It's the realm of realism. At the end of the story, it's very much in the realm of constructivism, narrative generation, the discourses that elites use to describe one another. And what kind of analytic uh, uh, tool is most useful depends upon where in that process one is. The second point I would make is that, as you see here, you get these different types of stable peace at the end. Rapprochement sometimes stops there. Sometimes you go all the way to security community. Sometimes you go all the way to union. I don't have a theory to explain when and why you go down that chain. I wish I did. If you have some ideas, I have some initial ideas. Uh, culture matters bigger numbers of states probably stop at security community, whereas smaller numbers may go all the way to union. Uh, but if you ask me to explain when and how one advances through those three stages of stable peace, I don't have a good answer, so I'm preempting that question. Final point I would make, this story runs in both directions. By that, I mean that it can just as easily go backwards as it can forward. And it often did in the case studies. The Soviet Union and China formed a remarkably close partnership, arguably the closest alliance that we've seen in the 20th century, in the 1950s. It was dead and gone by the early 1960s. The United States enjoyed seven decades of prosperity and unity fell apart in war in 1861. Yugoslavia is gone for good. Senegambia is gone for good. So the idea that somehow once you get 
to a peace, stable peace, it's there to stay, is I think an illusion. And perhaps in the conversation we might want to talk a little bit about where Europe is today. Uh, because Europe is, I think, an entity that is stuck somewhere between a security community and a union, but at least for now appears to be suffering some serious backsliding. And I would simply point to the acrimonious debate over what to do in Libya as a sign that that union may not be as stable as it appears. Let me conclude by, as I said, giving you a few takeaways, the, the kind of some of the most important conclusions that I'd like you to, to carry with you. First is, is the, the fundamental conclusion of the project, which is in some ways very uplifting, and that is that peace is possible. It may not happen often enough, it may not last or be as durable as we would like, but that when you look around the world, you can see in the case studies that I've handed out are examples of cases where states are able to escape geopolitical competition, of cases where they are able to get from enmity to amity and demilitarize their relationship. They do so primarily through engagement. And so in the big debate between McCain and Bush on the one hand and Obama on the other, is engagement appeasement or is engagement good diplomacy, my scholarship says that Obama is right. And that long-standing rivalries come to an end when one side and the other side sit down and engage the issues that divide them, not when one side coerces another side into submission. Unless, of course, you want to bomb that other country, occupy them, and rebuild them, which we did in Germany and Japan to reasonably good effect. That is a very different outcome than getting to friendship without war, occupation, and rebuilding. The second takeaway would be that if there is a, a kind of magic potion, an elixir that keeps reappearing through the cases, it is the practice of what I would call strategic restraint. What was it that Britain was doing to the United States and the United States doing to Britain? Withholding power, putting one hand behind its back as a way of indicating benign intent in its diplomacy. Concessions on territory, dismantling border defenses, making concessions on trade. Strategic constraint, restraint comes in many different flavors, but it is essential to sending the signals of benign intent that are crucial to getting countries to move away from rivalry. Another vehicle or instrument that's in the broad family of strategic restraint that I found repeatedly are efforts to deconcentrate power. Power asymmetries impair rapprochement because power asymmetries leave one or more countries vulnerable. And in many of the cases I looked at, states did things to make those asymmetries less consequential. So in the case of the Concert of Europe, <clears throat> dominated strategically in naval terms by Britain and in land terms by Russia, 
Britain and Russia did things to elevate the geopolitical weight of Prussia, Austria, and France, Prussia and Austria in particular, to, to, to make them feel like they were equals. They enlarged the borders of Prussia. They gave Italy a sphere of, I'm sorry, Austria a sphere of influence in Italy. In other words, trying to move away from a bipolar to a multipolar strategic landscape to make it easier to get to yes. Why do I live in what is effectively a mosquito-infested swamp in the middle of nowhere? I live there because it was the only place that northerners and southerners could agree was safe to put a national capital. Right? The national capital ought to be in a nice city like Philly or Boston or New York or who knows, but it's not. It's in the middle of nowhere on a river partway between north and south, partly commercial, partly agrarian, because it was the only place that Americans, northerners and southerners together felt safe concentrating power. Why do European parliamentarians spend most of their time on trains going from Brussels to Strasbourg to Luxembourg? Same reason, deconcentrate power. Why, when Switzerland was coming together, did it have two capitals, one for the Protestant cantons and one for the Catholic cantons? Because they couldn't agree, Protestants and Catholics, whether to put it in a Catholic or a Protestant canton. Not only that, but those cantons themselves couldn't agree which canton should have the capital, so these rotating capitals moved among the Protestant and the Catholic cantons. Deconcentrate power. Third takeaway, and one of the things that surprised me, regime type doesn't matter. We are led, particularly I think in American academia, but it also comes from our policymakers, our leaders, to believe in the so-called democratic peace. And so I came into this project thinking that I would find that democratic states are peace-loving, great, they make friends, they sit in the sandbox very nicely, and that autocracies mean, nasty, they throw sand in your eyes, and I simply didn't find that. I found that autocracies can be peacemakers with autocracies, with democracies, that states that are thuggish at home can be reliable partners at peace, that Brazil and Argentina embarked down the path to peace when both were ruled by military juntas, that Indonesia that was governed by a, one of the great thugs of the 20th century, General Suharto, nonetheless made peace with Malaysia and helped found ASEAN. The upshot being that I think we do ourselves a disservice when we judge other countries on the basis of their domestic institutions rather than on the basis of their foreign policies. Fourth takeaway, again, somewhat of a surprise and against the conventional wisdom, economic commercial interdependence doesn't matter. Of the 20 cases that I looked at, in only one case did economic integration clear the way for rapprochement and political settlement, and that was German unification between 1815 and 1871. In every other case, commercial integration was irrelevant during the key period of rapprochement and mattered only after the diplomats had done their work. 
So we can give money to Israelis and Palestinians, to Bosnian Serbs and Bosnian Muslims, to Japanese and Chinese. Tell them to have joint partnerships. Tell them to build factories together. And at least on the basis of the work I've done, it will have no geopolitical consequence. Peace breaks out when the diplomats do the work. The traders, the investors can help seal the deal. But diplomacy, not trade, is the currency of peace. Final point, I was struck in, in, as I went through the cases in the central role played by domestic politics in all the cases that I look at. As IR scholars, we, we tend to be taught to study IR, diplomacy, what one state is doing with another state. And I found that the diplomacy of rapprochement is hard but the politics of rapprochement is even harder. And that's because when leaders go out on a limb, when they take the risk of making peace with the enemy, you can bet that there are always members of the opposition or nationalists waiting to take them down for doing so. And that's why, as I said, the Brits hid much of what they were doing from parliament and public. It's why Suharto, when he decided to make peace with Malaysia, sent to Kuala Lumpur a delegation of hardline military folks because he needed the cover of the military to do that. It's why General Giesel, when he started to reach out to Argentina, moved very, very slowly because he knew that there would be a revolt in the hardline security apparatus. So whether you're autocracy or whether you are a democracy, Good policy requires good politics. And I would simply say that in the case of the United States today, when Obama is trying to engage the adversary, has been speaking to the Cubans, to the Iranians, to the Syrians, to the Russians, to the Burmese, he certainly has his work cut out for him in Havana and in Tehran and in Moscow. But in many respects, some of the greatest obstacles to engagement, particularly after the midterms, may well be in Washington and not abroad. Because oftentimes making peace with the enemy requires a bipartisan consensus, which at least for now looks extremely elusive uh, in this country. I will end with that uplifting thought and uh, look forward to your questions and comments. Thank you. Ted.
On the, uh, the first issue, I, I see the, those four stages as, as necessary conditions. And that in the cases of failure, oftentimes what would happen is you would get down, let's say, to stage three, and you wouldn't be able to advance because of the incompatibility of the social orders of the countries in question. And when you get the diplomats to do their work, but then they can't sink roots into societies at large, repression becomes very vulnerable and becomes uh, prone to failure when those elites leave, as happened with the Concert of Europe after the revolutions of 1848. But usually, the, the story that I found is that parties with vested interests threatened by rapprochement block it between stages two and three. So for example, in the case of the United Arab Republic, born in 1958, Nasser moves into Syria and attempts to essentially nationalize the Syrian economy. Well, the bazaar merchants and the landed gentry go berserko, uh, and they essentially pay the army to carry out a coup against Nasser because the United Arab Republic's political economy was unseating the traditional Syrian elite, and they blocked it and they wanted out. Same thing happened to Senegambia. Senegal wanted a customs union with Gambia. Gambia's elite relied upon the re-export trade. In other words, they'd import stuff at very low tariffs, smuggle it into Senegal, and sell it at Senegalese rates, which was much higher. Uh, they, they were unwilling to do the customs union. The United States, again, uh, a question of incompatible social orders between, between North and South. The, the question about commercial integration, again, in some ways is related. It's, it's not irrelevant if it comes at the right time. It's irrelevant if you presume that it is sufficient to create a political breakthrough. So what I'm basically saying is that the causal chain needs to be set up in the proper sequence. Uh, in other words, you know, to give you a concrete example, if you get a settlement between the Palestinians and Israel on Jerusalem and on the borders, and then you bring in lots of economic incentives, those economic incentives can help. If you don't have a settlement, economic incentives just aren't going aren't to get you to yes. Uh, on the regime type issue, you know, the easiest answer to, to the question would be, I just didn't find much difference. And I guess I would align myself with the work of someone like Jessica Weeks, uh, who, who basically says, you know, we, we, we're told that audience costs are very high for democracies, but autocracies can do whatever they want to because they don't have any domestic audience costs. Uh, I found that the navigation of this issue in autocracies was at least as complicated domestically as in democracies. Part of it was the, was it the selectorate, is that the, the term you use? But the bureaucracies, publics matter. You know, they don't vote, but they matter. Uh, and in that sense, I really found very little difference. You know, I don't want to, I, I do think that, that I would call democracy or liberal polities a favoring condition. 
And that's because I think that liberal democracies are better at practicing restraint than autocracies because they have that restraint in many cases codified in their own domestic structures, unlike autocracies. But I, I really was struck when I sort of stepped back from the cases that absolute monarchies, military juntas, you know, lots of different kinds of countries that are supposed to be really nasty, ugly, and we're supposed to hate them. We're actually very good at making peace. Yes? I didn't get into the, uh, there's a whole other section to the book, uh, the sort of theory section. I mean, th this is a, there, there are two questions that I attempt to deal with. One is, you know, what's the story? What's the sequence? How do you get there? And that's what I shared with you today. And then there's a different section of the book, which is about when does this happen? What's the theory? Uh, and I talked a little bit about that in response to Ted's question that compatible social orders matter. But the, uh, uh, the other piece of the puzzle that I didn't discuss is common, uh, cultural commonality is an important variable. Uh, and that it's an elusive variable. It, uh, you know, uh, incompatible cultures at time one can be compatible cultures at time two. But I basically found that race, ethnicity, and religion and the, the sense of other created when there are discontinuities on those variables are substantial hindrances to moving down the path to peace. Uh, interestingly, language washes out. I did not find any real correlation on the language front. I did find it on religion, ethnicity, and race. Uh, but again, you know, that, that variable is, is hard to grapple with because during, let's say, the 1600s or the 1500s, Protestants and Catholics were each other's main other in Europe. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people died over that cleavage. Today, there, except maybe in Northern Ireland and a few other places, that is no longer a salient cultural dividing line. Now it's Christians and Muslims in Switzerland. It's no longer Protestants and Catholics. Uh, and so there's, there's change over time, uh, but it is, a, it is an important variable. Final thing I'd say on this front, uh, I'm not a Huntingtonian in the sense that uh, I'm arguing that different cultures are destined to clash. I did not find that. I am arguing that common cultures are uniquely privileged in being able to carve out zones of peace. So for example, at the same time that the British were making nice to us, they were making nice to Japan. In fact, they fashioned an alliance with Japan in 1902. That failed. Rapprochement with the United States worked. Rapprochement with Japan failed. They were at war with Japan by the 1930s. One of the reasons that it didn't work was the cultural distance and the racism. The Brits felt much more comfortable with Anglo-Saxons than they did with Japanese. Please. Uh, two uh, annual-related questions were asked. The, the first, uh, I was struck you mentioned how he Larger number seems to do better. We 
which is sort of puzzling if you think about it from a kind of collective action, Mams or Olson perspective, right? Where you assume that cooperation should be a part of a larger number of groups. So I was wondering maybe how you reconcile those two. The second question is, so if this is about friendship, um, from friends, from enemy friends, right? Is friendship dyadic or is it systemic? In the sense that, uh, certainly in the Papalashman cases, you have, I mean, you're primarily dealing with two different actors who are coming together. They start out as enemies and then they become friends, or maybe they, it fails, right? Um, but when I think about friend, friendship today, right, it seems like all the United States friends are friends with one another. Um, and their enemies, well, I mean, there are questions about, I mean, are there really axes of evil, right? But there seems to be a kind of a network effect going on, right? Friendship and enemyship that aren't exactly randomly distributed. So I guess I'm wondering about the dyadic, systemic interplay there, and, and mm -hmm. what you think that that, does the systemic factor of friendship make dyadic uh, sort of transitions easier? Does it make it harder? Mm -hmm. uh, both very interesting questions. On the um, first question, you know, I think that if you're dealing with a, a fairly diverse grouping across cultural divides or linguistic divides, it's harder to get to the end of the process. So for example, one of the reasons to think that Europe will never become a federal entity is that it consists of 27, 28 countries that, are, that really have, have kind of quite different traditions and that it's therefore easier to put them in a, a looser security community where they can maintain their autonomy than to try to mush them together into a more homogeneous whole. Unlike here in the United States where everyone spoke English, most people were Christian, uh, uh, and it, it, it created the, uh, the kind of makings for a federal union. And I would make the same argument, say, for Germany, same argument for Italy. ASEAN, which encompasses you know, countries with, with quite wide range, would be more prone to, to, to stop before getting to the, uh, union, uh, to the union level. United Arab Emirates, all Sunni, all Arabic-speaking, all conservative monarchies, more likely to go further down the food chain. But as I said, uh, I, I, don't, I don't have a good a good body of theory to, to give you a, a good, sharp, complete answer to that. Um, on the second question, I, th I think that, uh, and, and this is probably both an inductive and a deductive response, that, that dyad, or the dyadic friendship is the foundation for systemic friendship. Uh, and that when I think about, uh, you know, there, there are some exceptions to that, but most of the cases that I, that I look at in the book and that I'm just thinking through now depend upon a kernel, which doesn't necessarily have to be dyadic. It might be three, but that, that kernel forms the basis for a kind of biological expansion of friendship around it. So... The core, you know, the, the Europe today is is really founded on a Franco-German bargain. Mercosur is founded on a bargain between Brazil and Argentina. ASEAN rests on rapprochement between Malaysia and Indonesia. 
And that, once you have that kind of foundation among the core states, you then have a foundation to kind of open it up to, to, to other states that are in that same strategic theater. And, it, and, and the logic of it is that a Belgium, a Luxembourg, a Netherlands is, un, is comfortable entering the European Union in part because France and Germany are in an embrace which makes it safe for smaller countries to sidle up to them. Uh, so I think that, please. Yes, it, it, particularly in the in the in the family of events that I'm looking at, right? I'm not saying that in all cases war starts in the ide ideational realm and then uh, goes into the material. I'm saying that in cases where countries have started to embark down the path to peace, what scuttles it is a disagreement about, about social norms, about uh, social order, about political economy, and that then backs the, the parties into a dispute about territory and about security. So for example, in, in Senegambia, in the United Arab Republic, in the United States, in the case of the Sino-Soviet alliance, it wasn't as if Russia and China all of a sudden woke up and said, you know what, I don't like you and I'm going to arm my border. What happened is that Khrushchev and Mao had a falling out about ideology, about relations with the United States, and the two began to separate at the ideational level. And then that had a societal impact, which is that the Soviets withdrew their advisors. And these two societies started to separate. And then, as a knock-on effect, you started to get the return of geopolitical rivalry and the remilitarization of the border. But that was the end of the process, not the beginning. And I would make a similar argument about you know, why the United States fell apart. Right? We didn't start arguing about territory. We started arguing about slavery and about urbanization versus industrial uh, uh, farming, agrarian life. And then the South created a narrative of the Confederacy of being a separate nation. And then it turns into a geopolitical rivalry. Charlie, do you know, I just want to take you back on that. You made a very counterintuitive. Did I call on you? No. You made a counterintuitive, but it's fine. All right. Fair enough. But you made a very counterintuitive observation. You're saying constructivism explains war and realism explains peace. No. I don't know. Just one point. 
Thank you. Thank you, Randy. Next question, please. <laughs> no, I, I don't. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> he doesn't write the chat. <laughs> they are both necessary to explain war and peace. You can't explain either without the other. Please. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, with regard to Senegambia, I'm wondering the extent to which uh, international factor played a role in the failure of uh, the union. Because if you look at uh, across uh, sub-Saharan Africa, all attempts to create any kind of union has failed. And especially in the case of Senegambia, you have two countries that were colonized by two different cultures, if you will. And bringing them together was quite problematic. And I would think um, the disagreement at the level of Britain and France played a role in the disintegration of Senegambia. So I'm wondering the extent of which that played a role in the challenge of I don't know enough about that case and about the international politics of the case to, to fully answer the question. Uh, I can tell you that the international community, both the, Europe, the retreating colonial powers and the United Nations, favored some kind of association between Senegal and Gambia well before the, the union took place. There were lots of proposals that were floating around from... Uh, from well before 1981 or 82, I, was, I think it was when, the, when it came together. And so I don't think that there was any opposition from the European powers, uh, but that, uh, as some of the scholars of the, of the period write, it was really that it, uh, the Union died from atrophy, that it kind of lost political salience in both Senegal and Gambia, and then uh, both sides kind of took the opportunity to get out of it when that opportunity arose. The one place where I think the, uh, the external, the role of external powers did matter is on the, 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 the imperial legacy, right? That, that, that Senegal, a French colony, uh, highly regulated, high tariffs, bureaucratized, centralized, Gambia, a British colony, much more open, much less regulated. And it was that difference in kind of the, uh, the, the, the organs, the insides of the two that, that made the pairing difficult. And I would also say, coming back to the, the cultural question, that the Gambian elite, all of whom were trained in English and in British, is it civil law or common law? What, common law. They were frightened that they would get vacuumed into Senegal and that they would lose their, their skills, their, their social status, because their language and their, their, their practice of law would, wouldn't be relevant in a Francophone state. Uh, so to that extent, the, the imperial legacy uh, uh, did I, I matter. I ask the question partly because ECOWAS has had enormous problems up until maybe they can get their acts together in the last six years. Largely because France tying its currency to the Francophone African countries mm. made it difficult for any kind of monetary policies that could have been the foundation for bringing together Senegal and Gambia. 
as well as other uh, countries that aimed at some kind of integration within the region. Okay. Yes. Uh, I think it's uh, two related questions. Um, so first, uh, I'm wondering what the, um, what the time parameter is that gives you a notion of stable. I don't know how long. Some of these look really short. <laughs> Some, you know, the European Confederation seems to have done really good there. And second, I think when you, when, you, when you broke out, you said peace and politics. And then you said something, I hope I got you right, I don't know if I got to get to that word. But you said, well, I'm, I'm interested in those sorts of pieces that arise out of engagement, as opposed to compulsion, um, or some sort of force laden notion. And I'm wondering, well, could you skip that, the tenth question, could you skip the first two pages, the first two stages, if you're using compulsion, and get the result of you have the introduction of the latter two stages. I'm thinking how the Romans, as it were, get Italy or get, get the, Rome, the initial stages of the, of the Roman Confederation what becomes the Roman Empire, or what happens in Greece, and I could march up towards modernity if you like. But it, it looks like you could be pretty forceful in bringing together people, and if you can just preserve that uh, relationship, stable relationship for long enough, pretty soon you get the I'm not sure I'm following you. Are you saying that you can sort of do imperial penetration? Think of how, think how Rome literally gathers Would send in the, the legions? Italian, no, the Italian peoples on that peninsula over the span of two, three hundred years until basically the whole of the peninsula becomes Rome, right? Did they do that? Consensually or through force? Through force. Okay. But it just, they held the force long enough, and soon they had mediational and sociological sure. stability in place, and they became a people. Right. I'm, just, I'm just wondering kind of how you choose your, your, your cases here. Right. Sure. Um, on the length issue, I made a, a somewhat arbitrary uh, decision to define a success as any zone of peace, that is to say, a non-war community that lasts at least 10 years. Uh, and that was really, I just did that by the seat of my pants. I don't really have any grand methodological justification for that. I, you know, as long as I, I sort of stated at the beginning, which I do, seems to me a, a reasonable way to proceed. And that's how I ended up coding the cases as a success or, or, or a failure. And there are some cases that are both. For example, the United States is a, is a success because it lasted more than 10 years, but then it failed. The Swiss are both. The Swiss sought, fought five civil wars between 1291, when the original pact was signed, and 1847, when modern Switzerland was born. Uh, but you know, it was the 10-year rule that, that governed that. Uh, on your second question, sure. I mean, you can, I mean there are many examples. Those examples are, are, are much more numerous than the, my examples, I was just looking at the universe of cases in which peace broke out consensually rather than by force. Uh, and that's why I don't write about cases where, you know, one, one case that I started to, to, to look at and thinking maybe I'll include this was the formation of the United Kingdom. Well, problem with that one is that the English invaded. Right, and then they sort of coerced people into being part of the union, and there you have it. That's an interesting 
story. It just happens to fall outside how I define the puzzle. Please. I was wondering about your rapprochement section, the first section, with the, the main case, the U.S. and Britain, makes great sense. I was wondering, would you, would, would you also include the United States and China from the early 1970s onward? I mean, that seems to me to be a classic case of rapprochement that would fit the British-American case in the two of former enemies that decide that there are common interests or common threats in which they come together. And it lasts. It lasts for decades. Whereas your, your failure case, Great Britain and Japan, they really weren't enemies before they signed an alliance, nor were the Soviet Union and China truly enemies before they uh, forged an alliance after, after Mao comes to power. So I'm, I'm not, I, I'm just puzzling about those as cases of failures. I would think a, a failure, a classic failure, would be a case of former enemies come together, forge some kind of an alliance, and then it breaks apart. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think what a good case of that would be. The US and Russia, maybe, from Gorbachev to Putin? Right. The, uh, the US-China case, I think, would be an interesting case, but it would not fall uh, above the bar in the sense that I'm looking at cases where the relationship is demilitarized. Uh, U.S.-China, there was obviously the establishment of diplomatic relations and the strategic triangle, but as we see today, we, we are not in a non-war community with China. We may be, and I think there are lessons for the book for how we might want to deal with China, uh, but I'm, I'm not quite sure that it really falls into the same category as as these other cases. Uh, one case that I thought about doing, and I think would have fit, is the one that you just mentioned at the end, and that is US-Russian relations in the 1990s, where we, you know, we sort of started moving down that path after the, the two plus four talks of the solution of the Soviet Union, but we didn't, you know, are, are we in a non-war community with Russia? Not yet, but maybe we'll get there. But I ended up just just not uh, not doing that case. But I think it would be an interesting one. Isn't also Germany France a classic case of rapprochement from 1945 onward? Yes, and I, I to some extent do deal with that case in the EU section, uh, but it's not technically a legit case because I exclude those that were the immediate product of war and occupation. Um, on the, I, I take your point about about the Soviet. I mean, the Soviets backed the nationalists initially. Uh, they were not particularly friendly with the Chinese communists, and they started to side with them only when they, the situation on the battlefield began to change. So, could you? I think it would probably be a stretch to call them open enemies, but they certainly were. Uh, we're not in a in a relationship of strategic partnership until until the Mao uh, uh, Stalin relationship began to take off, uh, and on and I think yeah, I take your point as well on on Japan and Britain. They were not they were not um, enemies in the sense that they were uh, likely to go to war with each other. But the British did see the rise of Japan and the success of Japan against Russia and China as worrisome 
for their naval hegemony in the Eastern Empire. And in that sense, the decision to form a strategic alliance with them was really quite controversial and opposed by many in the UK, partly because they saw it as a, a blow to the honor of the British Empire that they would have to form a strategic alliance with a non-European power. Yes? I had a question about the initial move to Osman and sort of what are the conditions necessary for that move. The key mechanism there is the strategic restraint. I'm reminded of Eikenberry's work and his, I think his, one of his claims is that the logic of strategic restraint works because a great power knows that it will be a great power forever uh, and that it can lock in its gains now by creating a constitutional order. And I wonder if the same dynamic is at work in Osman where a great power is sort of acknowledges its status as a declining power. In the case of the U.S. and Great Britain, it seemed like you were suggesting Great Britain recognized that it would extend itself and it didn't have the resources to confront the U.S. and it didn't anticipate it was going to have those resources in the future, so it had to accommodate the U.S. demands. And I wonder if that's a pattern you found in a lot of these cases where the uh, initiating state was a declining power, uh, and, whether, and if not, what are the conditions that are not just simple uh, diplomatic uh, innovation? Yeah, I mean the the opening move does not always come from the from the largest power. When the opening move comes from the largest power, it has the biggest impact because it's unusual. Right? When a small power makes an accommodation of a large power, it's it's normal. It's kind of interpreted. Well, they have to do that because otherwise they get clonked on the head. Right? But when a big power backs down in a dispute, it's more like the, the, so the American boat reversing its propeller when it doesn't need to. Uh, and therefore, it, it is often a better jump start to the process. But you know, I found across the cases that it really depended upon the circumstance and that the, that the, uh, the initiator, as I mentioned, was driven by some type of strategic necessity and it therefore reached out to, to, to one of its enemies. Sometimes it was the small power reaching out to the larger power. Uh, and, I, and let me also say that that sense of strategic necessity is not always external. Uh, in the case of Indonesia, the main impetus for Suharto to make peace with Kuala Lumpur was that the policy that Sukarno had adopted of confrontasi led to international sanctions and Indonesia broke off trade with Malaysia and its economy began to tank. By 1965, I think the inflation rate in Indonesia was 600%. And so there was a very strong economic motive for making peace with, with the neighbor. In the case of Brazil, the moderate junta was afraid that the country was being overtaken by the hardline security apparatus they made peace with Argentina as a way to undercut that faction. Uh, so it, it's not as if there's always some kind of external threat uh, that's driving it. When, when will a, a, a country that feels this sense of strategic necessity practice accommodation? When does the light go on as opposed to do something else like hunker down or lash out? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. Uh, it's an important question, but I think there's a certain serendipity 
to to that to that process. Please. Hi. Um, I want to push you on the, the reading that was uh, raised in the audience about how basically your argument says that rationalist mechanisms work well up front and then constructivist uh, mechanisms work better later. Because in your own comments in response to that, you said that one of the things that allows reciprocal restraint and unilateral accommodation to happen is an underlying cultural commonality. So don't we really need maybe five or six stages where the first two stages are social integration uh, or thin social integration, thin narrative generation, then you get unilateral accommodation, reciprocal constraint, and then thick um, social integration. So that's just a different reading out there. Um, but the real thing that um, is kind of going over in my mind here is that by looking at the list of historical case studies, you get the impression that nothing in the international system has changed since uh, the Swiss federations first started in 1291. Um, and I guess I'm thinking like Ned LeBeau's book is very interesting to me because it sort of shows that different factors matter more during different periods in history, right? So, you know, force matters less today than it did uh, in 1291 for certain sociological and historical reasons. I mean, one of the reasons I'm concerned about that and just would ask you if you saw that there were sort of differences temporally through the cases is because it seems like you're struggling to answer the China question and it seems like, well, the China question is tough to answer because war is just off the table, a la John Mueller plus mutual assured destruction. Um, and it seems to me also answering the economic interdependence question is tough for you with, without bringing in a historical dimension too because what economic interdependence meant in early, you know, the early 20th century when the European states were purportedly very economically interdependent was high trade flows. But now it means having exactly the same kind of economic capitalist system as imposed by the World Bank, the IMF, and the WTO, um, which seems to me to sort of imply a social order or imply the very mechanisms of social integration that are really driving uh, your argument as it is. So maybe in today's system, um, the, the factors that are driving peace are going to be entirely different than the ones in 1291, but looking at the case studies, um, you wouldn't get any impression of that. On the, the first uh, issue, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that there is a, a cultural sociological dimension at the beginning that I would to some extent call a, a, a social marker or social selection. Why is it that when a country looks out at the world and chooses a particular enemy to try to befriend, that it chooses X rather than Y? Uh, and that is to some extent uh, because it, it has an underlying affinity or it feels that it is more likely to be able to go down that path with the Anglo-Saxon country than with Japan. So in that sense, uh, I, I agree with you. I'm not quite, you know, that, that sort of social selection is much more rationalist uh, than the kind of sociological process that I'm talking at the end, uh, about at the end. And so in that sense, I, I think there's a bit of a distinction, but, but basically I take your point. Um, on the second question, I just don't think that the, the international system has changed that much. Uh, I don't think that force is uh, all that much less useful than it used to be. Uh, are we, you know, in the post-war world? Is, is, is war among major powers obsolete? Uh, I see Professor Mueller sitting over there. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, and so I think the game that we are in in international politics today isn't really that different and hasn't changed that much over time. Yes, economic interdependence today is, is different than it used to be, but I was uh, looking more narrowly at the degree to which kind of bilateral 
commercial integration, whether it's finance or trade, is an important precursor to political settlement. Uh, and I think that's still an important question today. It, we don't you know, necessarily trade the same things. The, the Iroquois Indians were trading wampum you know, shells on strings rather than, than semiconductors. But I think that it's the same basic logic about the degree to which commercial integration correlates or causes peace is at stake. Please. Yeah. Um, you know, I, the, the stable peace that I describe is a, is, you know, it's a high form of stable peace. There's, there's plenty of peace with stability out there in the world that, is, that falls far, far short of the kinds of relationships that I'm talking about. In other words, you know, the Cold War, that was a stable peace. Uh, there has not been much interstate war in South America over the last couple of hundred years. Uh, Brazil and Argentina, I think, last went to war in the early 19th century. And so you could say, well, they've had stable peace since 1810 or whenever. Uh, but when you have the absence of war, but nonetheless the militarization of interstate relationships, that's not of interest to me in this study. That's, that's a very interesting phenomenon, but it's a different phenomenon. So I was really carving out a very narrow realm of international political life where you actually, the prospect of war is gone, right? where the relationship has been demilitarized. Now, you may justifiably say, well, is that friendship? Uh, and my answer to that is I think it is, uh, and that that countries aren't going to drop their guard down. And, you know, in some ways I would, I would sort of pick up on the realists and somebody like Mearsheimer to make this point. The realists always say that you can never escape geopolitical competition because you can't trust, right? Because the uncertainty is always there, and as long as the uncertainty is always there, you're going to have a revolver in your pocket, right? And... The only time I think in international politics you don't have a revolver in your pocket is when you trust the other party. 
And that's why we have demilitarized the U.S.-Canadian border. That's why we complain when the British don't spend enough on fighter jets, not when they do buy fighter jets. Uh, and so it seems to me for that kind of unusual and rare phenomenon to take place in international politics, I don't, you know, maybe friendship is the wrong word, but some sort of strong, positive affinity has to be there. And on the concert, you know, I'm not, uh, I think you've, you know much more about the concert than I do, but my sense is that, that you know, the key players did feel that they had a personal relationship with each other. That they're, you know, when they m met in Vienna and Chaumont and the Congresses, that, that they, they actually felt that they forged some sort of, of community. And it wasn't deep down at the societal level, but it was at that sort of uh, ethereal, aristocratic level, uh, a community of, of perhaps friendship. But uh, I'll defer to you on that. All right. Well, it's been an excellent talk. Thank you very much. And let me, just, let me just point out that one of your own, John Elliott, who was a grad student in the department, uh, was critical as a, my research associate at the Council on Foreign Relations when I was doing this book. So he knows more about Senegambia, the Iroquois Confederacy, the United Arab Republic than any of you will ever want to know. So thank you, John. <laughs>